I remember my first brush with shame. Um, probably wasn't my first, but it's the first one that I, I remember. I was a little guy. I was, I was maybe five or six years old. And uh, in our house, we had just received a new copy of the JCPenney catalog, um, which in those days was high entertainment. We didn't have cable. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have video games. Um, we didn't have many stores that we actually went to to shop. We were kind of out in the country. So um, I loved when we'd get a new catalog, and the JCPenney catalog was a big, fat one, and there was all kinds of stuff to look through. And, uh, and just look at all the things that existed in the world, things that I didn't have any money to buy as a kid, but uh, it, was still, it was still high entertainment. And so I remember getting that catalog and flipping through the pages. And then I remember coming to a section... Um, and this was before Victoria's Secret was a thing, but similar idea. I remember coming to a section, and, uh, and I, remember just, I remember just lingering there as a young kid and just being like, whoa, what is this? And, uh, and, and I was so interested in that that, uh, that I, I did something odd next. I, I took that catalog, and I went, and I put it away in my room so that I could, I could look back at it later. I wanted to, I wanted to check this out further. Um, and I don't even remember how many times I might have looked at it or, uh, or anything, but what I do remember is... I remember my mom coming into my room and cleaning my room up and finding it in there and asking me about it. And she was, she was so tender and gentle, and I don't even know if she had any idea, but, but right away I knew. And I'll still remember, I still can remember how my face was like fire and my, my mouth got all dried out and I started breathing heavy and I started sweating. I blame all of my modern day sweating problems on that moment. I'm still... Uh, still there. And I remember making up an excuse. I don't remember what I said, but I remember just like trying to think of some excuse, but feeling very put on the spot about the whole thing. And what I remember most is after she left, and again, it's not a big deal, but after she left, I remember feeling like a monster. Now, I have had way too many experiences with shame in my life, hundreds more, maybe, maybe thousands of experience with shame in my life, and, uh, and they all kind of feel similar to that. Um, I think about some small things, some big things. I, I think about, uh, you know, a time, this is a big thing, a, a time where I took something that really wasn't mine on purpose, and I wanted it, and so I took it, and, and then I remember later on coming to grips with that and just being like, who are you? Why would you do that? And uh, I remember other little things. I remember being, a, again, a, a younger kid, and I remember accidentally walking in on someone in the bathroom, and it was a total accident. It was a mistake, but for whatever reason, I couldn't let that go. I felt so horrible about myself because of that. Um, I remember some other random things. I remember when Jocelyn and I were engaged, and we were getting closer to our wedding uh, day, and we had set up a meeting with our pastor to meet to plan the service. And uh, I remember at my apartment, uh, getting a phone call in the morning, and so I walked and I grabbed the phone off the wall. That's what you used to have to do, grab the phone off the wall. And uh, I answered the, you know, just kind of groggy with sleep, and I answered the phone, and it was my pastor's voice wondering where I was, and I had forgotten, I'd slept through the appointment. And again, I mean, honest mistake, he was so gracious about it. But I remember just hanging up the phone and, and feeling horrible, not just that I had inconvenienced him, but, but just horrible about who I was, like a monster, See, uh, I think probably still for this, to this day, shame is one of the most identifiable feelings that I know of. I, I know right away what that feels like for me. I've experienced it so many times in my life. And so have you. Now, I used to think, growing up in the church, I used to think that, that God wanted me to feel shame, that it was a good thing to feel. I, like maybe some of you, grew up in a church where every week we'd start off the service with a confession, and the confession went like this, I, a poor and miserable sinner, 
confess to you my sins and iniquities. And, and I remember that, that part, I, I, a poor, miserable sinner, and I remember thinking, yeah, that's right. I, I think that's how God wants me to see myself, as a poor, miserable sinner. And I understood that God is forgiving, that he is loving, he is merciful, I got that part, but I thought, man, if, if I'm gonna become better as a person, then I probably need to understand that I'm, I'm pretty despicable the way I am. That's the only thing that's gonna motivate me to change. And if I'm ever going to, to be able to come under the love and the forgiveness of God, then I probably need to loathe myself first. I, I, need, to, I need to see myself as a poor, miserable sinner. I need to see myself as, a, as just a despisable thing before I'll ever experience the love of God. And then um, I, I went on to college, and in college, um, I was a social, social science major, and I learned in social science and sociology how shame is one of the most powerful tools that a society has to keep people in line. That the use of shame is so necessary to keep polite society polite. And where there is no shame, people will do whatever they want. And so that, that's why in history we, we would flog people publicly or we'd lock them up in stocks and throw rotten fruit at them. That's why still to this day we'll take people's mug shots and put them in the newspaper or post them online because shame is socially necessary to keep things civil and polite. And, uh, and maybe that's why we then later as parents realize pretty quickly that we can spank our kids and that may be effective in changing their behavior, but there's nothing more powerful than looking at our kids and saying, how could you? We're saying, man, you really disappointed me. Or that's why we learn in serious relationships and marriage relationships and friendships. That's why we learn so quickly what other people's shame triggers are. It's kind of like our nuclear option, right? If you can't win a fight, if, if you're down and out, you can, just, you can just push that button and bring the other person to their knees. If you're married, tell me you don't know your partner's shame trigger. I bet you do. Even if you never thought about it, you know. You know when you're pushed up against the wall, you know exactly what to say to bring them to their knees. In fact, I, being such a student of shame myself or being such a wrestling with it so much, I, I'll tell you that everyone in my life, I know their shame trigger. Everyone on our staff, I know their shame trigger and I can, I can go there when I need to. I'm not proud of that, but it's true. Um, you know, in classrooms, teachers learn this, that it's a great way to control kids, you know, just, just a little bit of public shaming goes a long way. Shame is a powerful tool. It's really, really powerful, but that doesn't mean that it's good. In fact, it's just, it's just been the last year and a half or two years that I've been new on this journey where I've realized how devastating shame actually is. And I've looked back over the course of my life, a life lived under so much shame, and I realized that none of that made me better. It only corroded my soul, and none of that made me love God more, really. It just made me more afraid of him, uh, more distant from him. None of that helped any of my other human relationships either. None, none of my relationships with people got better. It only caused me to isolate myself and distance myself from people. And I'll tell you, while shame could keep me in line for a little while, it could, it could kind of help me control temptation and struggle and other things in my life, uh, my temper, other things. Shame could do that for a while. Eventually, the levees would always break. And I'd end up just, just drowning in shame. I realize that while shame is powerful, it, it can change people's behavior, it can, it can manipulate people, it doesn't ultimately make you better, it can't bring you life, it only will leave you burnt. 
Now, if you haven't come to this conclusion yet, or if you're struggling this, if you still think there's some redeeming value to shame, I just want to show something to you really quickly. Back in the Garden of Eden, maybe you've heard of that place, at the beginning of time when everything was perfect and there, there was nothing wrong and everything was paradise, the summary words of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, right before Adam and Eve fall into sin and everything is soiled, the summary words are this. This is the final description of what life was like in paradise. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, that's how God chooses to record the, the final word on what paradise was like. Adam and his wife, they were both naked, they were exposed, they were vulnerable, they were connected to each other, and they felt no shame. Do you really think that shame's a part of God's plan for us? I know that we're no longer living in the garden Um, We're no longer able to say that our hands are clean and that we're unsoiled. There's plenty of stuff that we can point to in our life that isn't right. And yet here's what I've also come to believe. That through Jesus and everything he did for us on the cross and in Easter, um, we are invited again to live like this. At least in front of Jesus, if not anyone else, to stand before him and to feel no shame. See, I want to show you how this works, how Jesus does this in real time after that first Easter. Throughout the series, we've been kind of looking at at people and how they responded to Easter. And what I love about this is that it's not like Jesus rose again from the dead and everyone was just better and all their problems were solved and everything was great. People continued to struggle even after that first uh, Easter morning, just like we continue to struggle. And Jesus, he, he appears to them and he shows up in different ways and he helps them work through the things in, in their life that are, that are leaving them burnt. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Mary Magdalene on Easter morning, how she was hopeless. She couldn't even see Jesus for who he was and, and he helped her through that. He restored her to hope. And last week, we talked about doubting Thomas and how he had been burnt because God hadn't conducted himself in the way that Thomas thought he should and and Thomas was the guy who relied on reason and how Jesus shows up to him so tenderly and helps him work through that we saw that this week we're going to look at how Jesus how Jesus appears to Peter Simon Peter is his name and uh, Simon Peter was one of Jesus's closest disciples and yet Simon Peter was struggling even a few weeks after Easter morning And he was struggling not with disappointment about Jesus or anything he had done, but he was struggling with deep disappointment in himself because here's something you should know about Simon Peter. He was a guy who prided himself on being loyal, on being courageous, and uh, always, you know, following through. That was kind of him. But but some of you might know that when Jesus was being arrested and beaten and tried, uh, Simon Peter, he, he was off hiding and someone pointed him out and said, hey, wait a minute, aren't you the guy? Weren't you following Jesus around? Haven't you? We saw you with him. And three times he denied Jesus. Now, I don't know what Simon Peter could have done to help Jesus in that moment, probably not a lot. And yet for Simon Peter, this is something he prided himself in, that he was loyal, he was dedicated, he was courageous. And uh, he had failed Jesus. And uh, Jesus, I believe, and we'll see in a minute, had fully gotten over that. But Simon Peter hadn't. And so he does what most of us do when we're, when we're just awash in shame. Simon Peter runs off and he hides. We're going to look at it. John chapter 21, starting at verse 1, where Simon Peter is hiding. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it all happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, who we talked about last week, also known as Didymus, 
Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, uh, these guys were named James and John, and two other unnamed disciples were all together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, it seems like a pretty unremarkable story so far. One guy says he's going to go fishing. A bunch of buddies say, us too. They sit in a boat. They catch nothing. It's just like your last fishing trip, right? Um, That's how it usually works. Just forgot about the cooler of beer or whatever else is there. Um, But actually, there's something much deeper going on here in all of this. It seems pretty ordinary, but there's something deeper. Uh, Does anyone remember, does anyone know what Simon Peter did before Jesus called him to be a follower? Yeah, he was a fisherman. In fact, he was a fisherman who fished on this very sea, on this very lake. This is where he made his livelihood. And one day he was sitting on the shore of this very lake, maybe even the same spot. And uh, he was on the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias. Um, He was sitting there and he had just finished fishing and he's kind of mending his nets. And Jesus walks by and he says, come and follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And in that moment, Simon Peter, he left his boats and his nets, and he started following Jesus around. And, and later on, Jesus made another invitation to him, and he said, Simon Peter, I, I, want, I want you to become a leader of leaders. I want you to lead these other disciples. And Simon Peter, he had, he had done all that. And now, strangely, Simon Peter is uh, back in his hometown or near his hometown, back on the Sea of Galilee, back out fishing. See what's going on here? Simon Peter... He's running back to his old life. See, in his mind, I I can just hear it in his mind because I've been there too. In his mind, he's thinking, being a fisher of men, not me, not anymore, not after what I've done, not how I've failed, I've I've blown it, I'm disqualified. Jesus would never have me now. So, So I can't be a fisher of men anymore. At best, I can be a fisherman. And so he goes back to try his hand at his old life again, and, and you see he wasn't successful at it. He stayed up all night, and he caught nothing, and, and we'll talk about that some later. But, but man, we're no, we're no strangers to that kind of thinking, are we? And when, when you blow it, when you mess up, when you fail, just assuming, just assuming in your mind that, man, I'm done, I'm worthless, I'm washed up, I've been disqualified, I, 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 I can't do that anymore, God, God can never use me again, I've been tainted, I'm soiled, Whatever it is, my failure is too great, my sin is too great. We are no failures to that kind of thinking. And, and maybe we can even know that, hey, Jesus, Jesus loves you. And, and we might even say that to people when, when, when a politician or a pastor or we ourselves fail. We say, Jesus loves you, but, but kind of the subtext of that is Jesus loves you, but you're done here. God is merciful, but you're no good. So move along. And so Simon Peter's doing something that is so natural after a big failure. He says, I, I, I'm not worthy anymore. I'm not qualified anymore. I'm just going to go back. I'm going to you know, sneak off into my old life. I'm going to try my hand at being a fisherman. I can no longer be a fisher of men. And, and when you're in those moments of shame, when you're trying to hide and you don't want to talk to people, you don't want to see people, the last person on earth that you want to have a confrontation with is God himself, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, when they fell in us and they ran away and they hid when they heard God walking, Simon Peter's going to do the same. We do the same. You know, like when you're feeling shame, you don't want to go to church, you don't want to face it because you think you know what's going to happen. You think you know what he's going to say. And yet it's into this moment that Jesus walks. It says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No. 
they answered. <laughs> I love this, right? They don't realize it's Jesus, but don't you love in life when someone comes along and they point their finger at your failure or your inadequacy, right? Like you don't know what you're doing or you're struggling and they're like, looks like you don't know what you're doing. Don't you love that, those moments? You just want to hug those people right around the neck, um, right? Um, so, so, uh, so, you know, here's Jesus on the shore and they don't know it's Jesus yet, but, but these guys have been fishing all night and some of them did, they were fishermen by trade and Jesus standing there going, Hey, you guys been out there all night? Yes. And you haven't caught anything? No. Man, I thought you guys looked like you knew what you were doing, but I guess not. And they're like, you know, heads hanging in shame. See, that's what we expect out of God, right? We expect that, that exact kind of interaction. We go before God in our failure, and he's just going to point it out to us. He'll ridicule us. He'll remind us of it. It's going to be a painful experience, and so we usually try to stay away. But that's not why Jesus came. I want you to see what Jesus actually came to do. So gracious. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. You know, the boat's about to capsize when they're trying to pull it in. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is who, uh, we believe this is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Now this is kind of backwards, right? Usually you take clothes off to swim, not put clothes on. Um, and yet, I think what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to make himself presentable. This is Jesus. This is someone he might already be on thin ice with. And so he's going to show some respect. He'll put on his outer garment, and then he's going to jump in the water so that he can meet Jesus in a respectful way. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish already on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even with so many, the net was not torn. It's just miraculous. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For deep down they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, now this, this reception that Jesus gives these guys must have been the last thing that Simon Peter was expecting. Right? A lecture, maybe, a talking to, yes, that's what we expect. And yet Jesus is so gracious. He meets them on the shore. He's got a fire ready. He's got some fish there for them. And he cooks them breakfast. He serves them. Because that's his way. He's just constantly gracious. And yet again, here, here's what I can imagine going on in Simon Peter's mind as, as Jesus is being so nice. He's thinking, man, this guy's just killing me with kindness. And he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. And the whole time he's sitting there thinking, yeah, Jesus, you're being so kind, you're being so gracious, but what do you think of me really? Now tell me you haven't laid awake at night in bed staring at the ceiling, wondering that same thing. Jesus, wh what do you think of me, really? How do you see me after what I've done, after what's happened to me, after you, you, you know my struggle? How do, how do you see me, really? I, I know Pastor Dion says you love me and you forgive me, but how do you, how do you really see me? Or maybe you've asked that question about a friend or uh, you know, a relationship in your mind, you're just thinking, man, how, does, how would this person see me if they knew? How do they see me now that they know? 
such a natural feeling of shame that drives us away to hiding. Peter's sitting there, and I just can imagine him crawling out of his skin because Jesus is being so nice, but he's dying to know Jesus. How do you see me, really? And in his mind, he's already answering the question. He thinks he knows. However you see me, it's not good. And when Jesus finally breaks into this important conversation, um, he does it in such a different way. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he's finally gonna get to the heart of the issue. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I'll tell you that for every time I read this in the past, um, because we don't have the benefit of seeing what Jesus is pointing at when he says these, my assumption was always that Jesus was talking to Simon, Simon, son of John, son of John do you love me more than these? And he was pointing to all the rest of the disciples. In other words, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all of these guys love me? Which I always thought, man, that's kind of an unfair question. Maybe a little awkward if he says yes in front of all the other disciples, right? Yes, I do love you more, right? Who's going to answer that way? And uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's the nature of the question. But this week, I actually, someone in my message study pointed out another option. And, and I think instead of pointing to all the other disciples, I, my, my hunch is what Jesus was pointing to when he asked this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, was to the 153 fish and the nets and the boat. In other words, Simon, son of John, do, do you love me more than you love this life? Because Simon, I called you out of this life one time. I told you you could follow me and you could fish for men and I called you to be a leader in this movement and, uh, and, and here you are, you're back in your boat with the fish and with the nets. And So Simon, has something changed in you? Do you still love me more than, more than this? Uh, more than this life? that you feel so comfortable with this life, this life that you know now? I think that would have been a much easier question for Simon Peter to answer when he had caught nothing, right? He'd say, no, fishing stinks. I'm not good at that either. But, but Jesus provided for him, right? He made him successful at his job again. He gave him this biggest catch of fish he's ever had in his life. And then he asked him the question, Simon, what path would you choose for yourself? What do you want more? What do you love more? Me or all of this? I imagine that's, that was a question that disturbed Simon Peter. And so here how, here's how he answers. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You can almost sense his defensiveness in that question. And Jesus answers, feed my lambs. Kind of weird response. We'll talk about that later. And then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A little annoyed this time, a little frustrated. Like, why, why do you get to ask me twice, Jesus? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds in a similar way. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. And I, I think at this point, Peter's starting to connect something and he's starting to imagine that he understands what Jesus is doing. He's thinking, oh, I get it. I denied you three times. And now you're going to make me crawl on my knees and grovel and tell you three times over that I love you. One time for each time. This is my restitution, right? I've, I've got to reassure you now, Jesus, that I love you because I denied you. And now my love for you is in question. So you're going to make me profess that three times before we can get back to an okay place. Okay, Jesus, here, here I am. I'm down on my knees. I'll, I'll grovel. And I'll tell you three times. I'll answer your question if that'll reassure you, if, that, if that'll help you understand And man, I'll tell you what, in my life, uh, for most of my life, I, I assumed just like P- 
Peter that all of these questions, that they were for Jesus' sake. You know, so, so when I would apologize to God when I'd, when I'd confess in church, I assumed that was for God. I assumed that God needed to hear that. He needed to know that I was really apologetic. He needed to know that I was really sorry. It was my chance to make a restitution by showing him that I knew that I was, I was miserable and I was, I was a mess and, and that I wasn't worthy of his love, that he needed to hear those words out of my mouth before his heart would be moved to love me. I had, I had to, I had to you know, beat myself up before he would lift me up. I, I believed that's what he required and I believe that's what Peter is thinking this is all about. So he's hurt, but he gets it, you know? I, Jesus, I hurt you, I denied you and now you're gonna make me hurt. That's fair and that's right and I deserve it. And so he's hurt when he asks a third time. And so he says, uh, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Man. See, in all of this, Simon Peter, you know, this question and answer, he's, he's making an assumption. And the assumption is that this questioning is for Jesus' sake. That Jesus needs to hear this. That Jesus needs the reassurance. That Jesus needs Simon to say three times, once for each, each denial. That this is about Jesus getting some need met. And the truth is, these questions from Jesus, they're not for his sake. They're all for Simon's. See, that's what Peter doesn't understand, Simon Peter. These questions are for his sake. They are an opportunity for him to let go of this failure, to tell Jesus how he really feels. Jesus knows how he really feels. He understands that it wasn't out of hatred that he denied him three times. It was out of weakness. It was out of fear. Jesus understands exactly where that was coming from. And yet Simon Peter needed this opportunity to be able to speak it himself he needed the opportunity to be able to speak, to tell Jesus what was really going on in him that day, that it wasn't a lack of love, it was something else. But yes, Jesus, I love you. You know that I love you. See, these questions weren't for Jesus' sake. They were all for Simon Peter's. And just look at how Jesus answers him finally then. In the same way he had before, Jesus said so tenderly, feed my sheep. Now, maybe this seems like a weird question or a weird answer to you. And what is this all about? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus is you know, a sheep farmer. What is this all about? You see what this is? This, this every time, same response every time, the first time, the second time, the third time. He didn't wait for the third time, but he said it on the first time. This is an invitation from Jesus saying, Simon, I know you think you've been disqualified. I know you find yourself to be unworthy. But when I came years ago and I invited you to follow me, that calling still sticks. Your failure hasn't disqualified you. And I know you feel worthless and you feel unlovable and you wonder if, if I love you and you wonder if I, you know that, or I know that you love me and you're all twisted up about this. Simon, I know. I know what's in your heart. I know you love me. And while you may think you're disqualified and worthless and the only thing you're fit for is to be a fisherman back on these waters, Simon, I still want you. I still have a plan for your life. I still want you to be a part of feeding my sheep, of, of leading this movement forward. Simon, I have not disqualified you. You've disqualified yourself, but that was never me. That was all you. You see, the questions weren't for Jesus' sake. They were all for Simon's. See, I gotta tell you that today Jesus, Jesus is here. We believe that, right? That he's present. 
See, I believe that today Jesus is here. He's, he's standing here. And he is inviting you into a conversation. And, and maybe you've been one who has been resisting a conversation with him. And you've been like Simon Peter, out there on the water where no one can find you, no one can get to you, protected, isolated, detached, disqualified, muzzled, but, but you know, you're, you're in this untouchable place. And Jesus stands here and he invites you to come to him and have a conversation about those things that weigh you down. And it's completely your choice about whether or not you take up his invitation to have this conversation. You can come in and you can face Jesus or you can stay distant, being consumed by your failure and your shame, letting those things just kind of meld into your being, letting them become part of your identity. It's your choice. But I will tell you this, that if you choose to to come in and to have a conversation with Jesus, you're gonna have to face some things that may be painful for you. And Jesus may have some questions for you that he wants you to answer, but those questions aren't for his sake. He's not looking to interrogate you. It's not an inquisition. He's not looking for some sort of justice or retribution, none of that. Anything he asks you is ultimately for your sake. See, just like with Peter, he wants to set you free from your shame. Now, we've talked before in here how how guilt and shame are different. We often confuse the things. Uh, Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done. And guilt is a normal normal response, right? It it is a normal human response. If you don't feel guilt when you do something wrong, when you hurt someone, when you hurt yourself, when, man, if you don't feel guilt, if you don't feel like a sense of, man, I feel bad for what I've done, then, then there's something broken inside of you. But shame is not feeling bad for something that you've done, it's feeling bad about who you are because of something that you've done. See, see, guilt is something you can carry around and your identity can remain intact. Shame assaults your very identity. And you, and you start to feel worthless or unlovable. It, it creeps into who you are. And the reason we resist a conversation with Jesus so often, even though he's standing here inviting us with eyes of love, with words of love, is that we assume that if we come forward and and we acknowledge before Jesus our inadequacy, our sin, our failure, our struggle, the things that have happened to us, the tragedies that we've dealt with in life that we carry around with us, if we let him see all of that, we assume that he would shame us. We assume that he would say the things that, that we say to ourselves, that we are monsters, we're unworthy, we're unlovable, how could you? But that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, look today at how he handled Simon Peter with such grace and tenderness and compassion. And every time Simon Peter was, you know, answered and is fired up, you know, I love you, Jesus is just saying, then then come back. I've got a job for you to do. I'm not done with you. Your time isn't spent. See, See, the power of Easter, the power of what Jesus did on the cross and the power of his resurrection life is that we know that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing, not even death. And not the things that we've done. And so in a very real way, through Jesus, we have the opportunity to stand before him as we are 
acknowledging our failure, our shame, our, our shortcomings, all of that stuff, we can stand before Jesus naked and feel no shame because he has come to take our shame away, to carry it on himself. He took it to the cross. It's done and gone. And and he wants you to know today that all of that stuff in your life, it doesn't change for a minute who he sees you to be or how he loves you or the plans that he has for your life going forward. Not a bit. But you've got to be willing to have the conversation. When you came in today, you got one of these. Saw some of you like picking your teeth with it and stirring your coffee with it and... um, If you didn't get one, maybe the person next to you can break theirs in half and give you a piece. Um, I want you to hold this in your hand. Uh, This is just a little stick of wood, a little piece of tinder. We've got this fire metaphor going on. And fire can consume or it can purify, right? And so I just want you to hold this in your hand. Uh, And as you do, I want you to think about whatever that thing is that makes you feel unworthy, unlovable, that you believe has disqualified you from being useful, being loved by Jesus. That thing that keeps you up at night wondering, Jesus, because of this thing, how do you feel about me? What do you really think of me? How do you see me? That question that torments your soul, I I just want you to think about that as you hold uh, the stick of wood in your hand. And then I'm gonna invite you in just a minute first to have a conversation with Jesus and I'll prompt you through parts of that. And then after that, after you come off the waters and you face Jesus on the shore and you see his eyes of love and compassion for you and, 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 you, and you hear that nothing is going to change in his love or his opinion or his purposes for your life, that, that this can't get in the way of that, it can't separate you from his love, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Um, after we have that conversation, I'm going to invite you to come forward whenever you're ready and just to, to lay that burden, that guilt, that sin, that struggle, that hardship. I'm going to invite you to lay it down on the altar, knowing that Jesus came to take these things on himself, to carry these burdens, not, not so that you would have to keep carrying them. And, and I want you to walk away free. But first, let's have the conversation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We recognize that you're here and you're calling our names. And for some of us, that's really scary because we don't want you to get too close. We don't want you to see too much. And yet, Jesus, you see it all and you know it all. And your your cross and the empty tomb, it proves that that stuff doesn't ultimately matter to you like we think it does. It doesn't separate us. It doesn't disqualify us. It doesn't make us unworthy. It doesn't make us unlovable. So Jesus, right now by your spirit, draw us into a conversation with you. Help us to see your love, your compassion, your empathy. Help us see again who we are to you. Jesus, tell us what you really think of us. Not the things that we make up in our mind, but tell us again today how loved we are how valued. And Jesus, just help us face our guilt, our shame head on and leave it with you.
church, I want you to continue the conversation with Jesus. Spend some time there with him. And then whenever you're ready to to let this thing go, you can come forward and lay it on the altar and walk away free.